And they were the experts that Lord Bertrand Russell said they'd have to bring on board Madison Avenue, those who understood what motivates people and those who understood especially what motivates them on a subconscious level, all the drives they have inside of them. Bernays is one of their, their big heroes, the, the nephew of Freud, Sigmund Freud. I've got so much to say really about, and I can't cram it all into an hour, uh, or even, even in this one talk today, uh, about this system uh, that it's kind of mind-boggling how it's done, but I'll try and get some of the information out in the next hour or so of how this technique works back after this break. Say that, you see. 
repetition. And because so many folk are saying it at the top, we think, well, it must be true. That's simple. That's simple, a primitive type, uh, just basic repetition. That's also what Bertrand Russell mentioned about the, using Madison Avenue through repetitive advertising. They could literally get the people to, to obey, obey whatever they wanted them to do. Bernays claimed that he learned this by simply leafing through a couple of books by his uncle, Freud, which is utter nonsense, utter, utter nonsense, because you, need, you can leap, uh, leap through all the books of Freud and you'll never get the mechanism to do this. It's not there. But if you go back further in history and into the 1800s, you will find uh, there were books put out by other observers of society to do with propaganda, especially. Now, right up into Bernays' day, and you'll hear him say this himself, it was called propaganda, and he coined the term, even to make it more acceptable and digestible to the public, he said, uh, it's now public relations. It's still propaganda, but it sounds much as public relations. Every government, right down to your local government, and even the police forces use PR specialists to, number one, legally protect them from anything coming back at whatever they say or has happened or they've done. And, and also to give a, a completely kind of whitewashed, socially acceptable view out to the public by using the right terms and putting it across in a certain way, uh, fudging it, if you like, fabricating it to be acceptable to the public. But it's still propaganda. Now, education is full of propaganda, and all we get now, really, from all media, including all the entertainment, is propaganda. It, it can hide behind so many things especially those things which you like, and that's what Bernays goes into. Bernays looked at the sexual drives in people, for instance. He understood perfectly well. In fact, by the way, he also hated the general public because they were so easy to manipulate. You'll find this with all of those at the top. The, more, the easier it is to manipulate the public, the more they will hate you. And that's why they call you various names which are not quite human. But he looked at the drives. He looked at the fact that everyone lives in a little mental sphere of themselves and how they want to be noticed by others. And, and he had it all worked out through obviously being taught this technique from predecessors that you can manipulate every age group if you target them directly, because they always change from five years old to ten years old to twelve, hormones are kicking in and so on, and, and so, etc. So you can target each age group perfectly. Look at the ads on television near Christmas. They're aimed at five-year-olds for, for a particular toy or whatever, then ten-year-olds, etc. It's perfect. Even in the music industry, it, it, it's, it's probably more perfected there, because they've always understood this. Read Plato uh, when he talks about culture. Read what he says about drama and how important it was for the elite to bring in certain drama, traveling drama teams, stage actors with their plays, because the public would emulate what they saw on stage. They'd dress in the fashions that they saw uh, the women wearing. And the guys, too. They would, they would also emulate their heroes on stage. And coupled with music, as Plato said, uh, music itself was such a, a, a very powerful tool because it, it, it 
doesn't just use auditory, it uses visualization along with its other thing, the, the music, the mu- it comes from the muse. You have to look at the Greek muses to understand the techniques. Behind all ancient even stories and mythologies, there's techniques being shown to you if you understand what you're looking at. So look at the muses. If you understand the muses, you, you can control society, and many people down through the ages came to understand that same thing. And Bernays definitely was taught in these techniques. Music is so powerful that Plato wanted to license musicians because of the effect it could have on the youth. It could cause rebellions if they wanted to. Well, once you understand that, you can also get students and, and, and young people to rebel at what you want them to rebel about. See, that's the real technique of it. Most of those things which we rebel about are given to us. And the government's only so happy to start parroting those points of views back to you. Back to you. So you feel even more powerful like they're listening. But if the government is listening to you and parroting it back to you, like the whole global warming agenda, save the planet, go green, and so on, put out there by the big NGOs, then it's because the government wants you to do that. That's why. You're demanding what they want you to demand. So who gave this idea to you in the first place? It's never a, a simple grassroots person. Never, ever, ever. None of them are at the top of these NGOs. And they're all funded, as I say, by the big foundations. But Bernays, as I say, was taught this kind of stuff, and so he advocated creating and training, in his own words, training a whole society. And he, he didn't see the problem of doing it or even the difficulty of doing it. And then when you look at who was backing him, the big GM companies and all the big manufacturers were backing him to the hilt. In other words, the establishment, those who already were the, the captains of industry, were all behind them. And unlimited financing... Easy to do. Easy to do. Therefore, the people who gave you the consumer society, the hyper-consumerism, and knew exactly how to train a whole population and upcoming generations to be the same way, the same people are behind the opposite now. You've got to cut back on everything. You're over-consuming. Your sustainability will, will run out of everything. Look at who funds all of these so-called grassroots movements. Uh, I've mentioned the Rockefeller so many times because of a finger in so many thousands of pies. Why would the guys who started off the big industrial year in the U.S. and controlled it up to this time also be funding to their hilt and doing talks across the planet to various groups, United Nations, etc., governments? Why would these same big boys, the, the real captains, some of them call them the pirates of industry because that's what they are, why would they be also funding what seems to be their antithesis, their opposite? It's because they will also run the next phase of society. They've already got it drawn up what the next economy is to be and to, to drive into servitude. It's all this global warming and carbon taxes and they've been selling and trading countries have been, and big corporations have been selling and making profits off these carbon tax uh, refunds uh, before we even heard about it. So it was a must-be priority set up behind the scenes already, already set up and functioning 
the EU gave out so many millions or billions of dollars worth of these trading cards, however it is, loaded supposedly with, with credit units for, for carbon footprints. And they've been, they've been making the articles in the papers where they've made profits on it. They've paid nothing in, but they've all made profits off it, off with what the taxpayer gave them via the government. Incredible, isn't it? But why, why, or oh why would the big corporations be funding to the hilt a political agenda worldwide? What you think would put them out of business? That's not going to put them out of business. They'll be much, much bigger pirates by the time it's finished. Back with more after these messages.
take over all, uh, take away all your rights, basically, to do it for you and allow the experts to guide you. And they said themselves they favoured the collectivist idea more than any other system, which is a good way of saying uh, socialism or communism. Fantastic, as I say, to realize that people know this science. Not only know it, but they have, there's a power there of a dominant minority who can make it happen because everything runs on this thing called money, which the dominant minority have and control. They also have real estate as opposed to fake estate. See, money is fake estate. That's why they call the other stuff real estate. If you don't have masses of land, you're nothing. We don't have masses of land or even little plots of land even when you think you own your house because the government can take it away from you, which means you didn't own it in the first place. Because if, they, if you really owned it, they couldn't steal it from you. And it's because of back taxes. You either own it outright, outright or you don't own it outright. Interesting, the CFR took responsibility and credit for bringing in the death duties taxes so you couldn't pass it on to your offspring. And they also brought in the income tax and the property tax. They put it forward in bills, their members did. That's in their own writings. But they have to thank for that. Again, Cecil Rhodes, Milner, Royal Institute of International Affairs, CFR, same thing. So Quigley, Quigley wasn't kidding when he says these guys have been responsible for every major change, including all the wars you've had in the last hundred years. And they haven't stopped. Now, how they do it, too, is to give you what appears to be a genius every so often. And I caught on to that a long time ago when I looked at uh, the ones who were given to us as geniuses that changed society, like, like Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin did not have much going from him, apart from the fact it's about the fifth generation of interbreeding with one other family, the Wedgwoods. But he did have a, 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 was well connected with the Royal Society. And if you want to get anywhere in science, you've got to belong to the Royal Society. They mandate things to governments. And his grandfather and his father had also put up stuff on evolution before him. And the Royal Society picked Charles over the other competitors to bring this forward, guys like Wallace. And they made him the hero. Now, instantly, when the press go into action in a certain way, you make an instant star. That's how they do it. So a guy is suddenly a genius. So whatever he says on any issue is going to be believed, especially in politics and so on. The same happened with Einstein. Class is a dummy at school. Nothing happens for a long time. He's working in the patent office in Switzerland, helping to steal patents for his bosses, and he's rewarded by the, we'll make you a genius. You will come out with this, this, and this, things that no one can prove. And... Uh, uh, then you go around the world talking about politics and the need for international socialism. And people listen. And some have pointed out in the past that well, what, what more right does an Einstein have to discuss and promote a certain brand of politics than the plumber or the carpenter? Because after all, that wasn't a speciality, was it? You see, we follow the stars and they give them to us. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
every so often they, they get a genius for us, you see. And what happens when you're told this person's a genius? And all the media is just creating a star instantly. Someone you've never heard of. They do the same with prime ministers and president. Uh, and suddenly they're a genius on the world stage. And what you do in front of a genius is to sit back. Your, your, your mind takes a back seat thinking this guy is so incredibly um, intelligent that I could never even imagine how he thinks. And therefore you switch off and listen. You switch off your own ability to reason or to critically analyze. Uh, and therefore, the, the next thing you know, this genius that uh, is, is the inventor of this or that or whatever we're told, you see, uh, is into politics and telling us about how the world has to go in a social direction and all this kind of stuff. And that cause becomes a real cause for everyone. And the public don't recognize they're being guided, crafted, in a sense, by those behind the scenes, those behind the person that put up front as a genius. This technique was mentioned even by Adam Weishaupt. He said that we shall uh, create um, philanthropists, big, wealthy philanthropists, big foundations. That happened. Albert Pike also talked about the need to, to, to acquire incredible vast amounts of money even said by the stock market, by cunning, etc. I even hinted at any means possible. And then we should become masters over the masters of the world. And bingo, you have all these people popping up across the world. The top bankers suddenly are there, fingers in every pie, owning mines across the planet. Uh, you have um, the Rockefellers owning the resources of oil, the oil industry. Uh, and you should really look into the history of how they acquired a lot of those oil wells, too. There was anything but fair play when they had competitors, anything but. It was grab at all costs. But the next thing you know, after the Ludlow massacre, they brought in specialists to give him a different image, and he becomes a philanthropist. The old man that told the militia to get out and told governors what to do, get your militias out and get rid of those people, and they were machine-gunned in their tents, the strikers, with the help of two people, one a Canadian that was sent down, specialist in public relations or propaganda. They gave him a brand new image as a philanthropist. And suddenly a massive foundation is there. Suddenly, suddenly, mind you, there's a massive staff dealing with all of these NGOs and causes that were funding and other foundations that they were funding. This is the parallel government that Professor Carl Quigley who was the official historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, said it was. He said, it's a parallel government. It's not responsible to the public. No one elects them. And yet they have power on every, in every government because they have many members in every government. He said himself, they put the top people in as presidents and prime ministers as members. doesn't matter what party you vote in. It's always theirs. And they give you, as I say, geniuses every so often that we believe are. You know, I can remember when Roseanne Barr uh, did this comedy series. Next thing you know, she's she's out there advocating different social movements and and uh, firearm restrictions and things like that. Now, if it was someone in the street, no one would take any notice of her, but because she's up there on the screen, you see, people will listen more intently as to what she has to say old techniques, they all know that at the top, the ones who put these people out there and give them the roles to play.
Piper, but oh my God, he was a child genius and just did all this himself and yada, 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 until you go into the records of how Microsoft literally took various patents of different, different groups, got away with it. No one, no one ever came down them and charged them. In other words, doors were opened and the word was out to leave them alone. And they got right up there. Front organization. That's how you create it. They're real organizations, but they're fronts. After all, as I said during the Cold War, you couldn't allow really free competition in technology because technology was going to win it, whoever had the best. Therefore, you put your own ones out. They're real companies, all right? But they're all intertwined completely with the military-industrial Pentagon-CIA complex. So Bill Gates comes out, and, and, and after all these billions are made, uh, suddenly he's a philanthropist, you see, in with all the big shots, and rubbing shoulders with them. All, it's amazing to me, too, how you never get a philanthropist appearing on the scene who's in disagreement with, with the other philanthropists on any particular topic. They're all in complete agreement on every topic, you see. We've got to bring in a world system run by experts. We've got to bring in a socialist world system. We've got to get rid of so many people to save the world, and we've got to start sterilizing the public eventually down the road as well. Blah, 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 blah. They're all on board with this whole agenda. They immediately parrot the line, sustainability, sustainability, go green, and all that kind of stuff. And first to give you a little uh, buttering up by saying, well, Bill Gates is going to use modified mosquitoes like little syringes to, to immunize people in Africa against malaria. Brought rubbish. Now the next farce that comes out is, can Bill Gates control the weather? They've been controlling the weather for years. But they're getting you into thinking this man is a giant amongst giants. Giant amongst giants. He's a, a demigod. He's, he's way up beyond anything we can imagine. We can't even imagine how he thinks. He's such a genius, you see. But can Bill Gates control the weather? That's from today at PC World. I'll put this, this link up on my site at the end of the show. Then it gives the smile. It's like John Denver when he smiles here. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, is a man with a permanent light bulb over his head. So there you are. You already told he's a genius, you see. You, so you put your reason back and you say, little old me can compete with this. I'll just sit back and read it and believe it. His, his latest idea, what a joke, controlling the weather sounds insane, but in a patent application recently released to the public, Gates and several co-inventors you know, co-inventors, have concocted a scheme to kill hurricanes over the ocean before they wreak havoc on land. Now, go into the United Nations Weather Warfare Treaty, written up in the 1970s, where they said they could already do all that stuff. That's why you have a treaty, you see, so that you won't use it against each other. Mind you, in UN treaties, you're allowed to use everything that's banned on your own people. I don't know if you know that out there. So that's how they, they put him up there as the front man and, and, and give him role after role as a big philanthropist and a benefactor of men. They have their own term for these people at the top, by the way. And it's so odd because we've all heard of transhumanism as where we're going to all evolve through technology and be part cyborg and eventually be, even be a different kind of species. But these guys there at the top already, already in their own publications, call each other transhumanists because they are the highest thing to gods, the nearest thing to gods. That's what they mean by it at the top, the, the big boys. Not the little wannabes down below that want to get artificial arms and be like Art, uh, Schwarzenegger or something in a movie. 
They believe they are the enlightened masters, you see. The hidden masters that are out in the open. The benefactors of mankind. That's what they call them, transhumanists. They call each other that. They're not waiting for something. They're already doing it. See? But getting back to what I'm saying, how propaganda is peddled every day from children's comic books to their cartoons on television. Look at all the greening stuff they're getting brainwashed with and how adults are bad. They ruined the planet for us. To their little school books they get too when they start. You're looking at the creation of totally indoctrinated for political purposes children. Totally, absolutely, 100% indoctrinated because they must be on board with one agenda and it wasn't one that any of them dreamed up. It was all done by much older people that were alive before these children were even born or thought of. Remember what Huxley said in his speech at Berkeley, 1962. And see if I'll tie in with what you've been hearing recently. He says, it seems to me that the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this. The ultimate revolution, right? These guys have been behind all the revolutions down through time. He says, that we are in the process of developing a whole series of techniques which will enable the controlling oligarchy who have always existed and presumably will always exist to get people to love their servitude. Servitude, service, a world of service. Remember what you'll find by Carol Quigley in his own books with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation bringing a world of service same thing with, with is when they transformed into the Royal Institute of International Affairs, a world of service. The Council of Foreign Relations, the American branch, a world of service. In service to the world state, you see, which is run by a controlling oligarchy. That fits in with what Orwell said, in such utopias, some are more equal than others. Definitely the standard of living, you see. It's astonishing, as I say, astonishing how it works. It's so perfect. It's all pervasive. It's all around you. It's daily. You've had it since you were a child. In fact, for what's happening today, we've had mm, probably 40 years of preparation for the greening movement and the sustainability stuff. It's in all the nature shows. It's in cartoons and so on. And Disney, where animals talk to each other in English with American accents. And it's, it's just astonishing how much programming we've all had. Technically, none of us should be awake to anything. We should all be in massive groups, all with banners demanding that governments do what the governments want us to demand. We should all be doing that, blinded, massive groups. This is the age of groupthink, you see, where we all do it together. And as I say, it's all through everything, arts, entertainment, music, Look at all the, all the messages and even comedies. I've talked before about the censorship committees. International. Everyone thought was there to keep their culture and preserve it and not to get too far into blasphemy and all that kind of stuff. Or to stuff that, stuff that was just too, too out there uh, to be tasteful. And then you find out, no, that their job is to see how far 
the public can be pushed with the next barrage of sitcoms and so on, along social policy lines, political lines. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. It's the same, too, with all books. Going back to George Orwell, he was the darling of the socialist movement before he went off to the Spanish Civil War, thinking he was fighting to bring in a wonderful world socialism, where everyone would be equal and they'd all have what they needed and so on. And that was in the days before we had, had the Bernays pushing out, really, um, the American culture to, to its maximum with consumerism. And when he came back and he met the communists and so on and met many other big players, he realized that they were all in it together. He realized that the ones who even picked him at university, the professors, standard procedure, were all part of this big oligarchy at the top, or at least working for them. So were the heads of the communists. And he realized, too, the danger of this socialist communist movement because it was so apparent to him what was going to happen in Britain and Europe and elsewhere. So when he came back, he did his walking tours around the socialist uh, enclaves, giving speeches, and when he gave them the bad news, and he says, look, you, we're going to be careful here. That's not what we thought it was. They turned their backs, and the crowd don't like to be told anything contrary to, to what they want to believe. They don't like that. They get nasty. And they turned their backs on him. He tried to, to put it into book forms like Animal Farm, to show you the end of the revolution, the animals' revolution against the humans, there's the pigs, the leaders of the animals, having a great party with the humans in the house. All the animals are looking through the window in the cold and the rain. And they're boozing it up inside and having a great feast. And the humans say to the, the leaders, the pigs, it says, congratulations, you've been able to do what we've been trying to do forever with the animals, get them to work for nothing. World of service. World of service. But Orwell had a heck of a job getting his books out because all the publishing houses, he realized, really all balled down to under the this, this spider web of publishing houses because you have the, with the illusion of competition. It doesn't exist. Publishing houses are not there to get your books out. They're there to censor what gets out, decide what does get out for the public to listen to and believe in. You see? Last night I mentioned Vince White from The Clash who's got a book out and it's called uh, The Last Days of the Clash Out of Control, The Last Days of the Clash and he tells you in the book from a, and he's got an ability to actually write it as though you're living through it because he remembers how he was going through it, a young, naive guy full of uh, pep and vinegar as we say and the sky's the limit, optimistic, etc., into something big. Uh, and then you see the gradual disillusionment as, as he realizes that there's bigger forces. It isn't just going out making songs and, and having a good time and making people happy with the music. There's much, much more. It's political, completely political. And you can actually read his book. He sells it direct, vincewhite.com. You'll find it there, out of control, last days of the clash. But it shows you the route that most young guys go through who get into that field, how they're taken over by the professionals, how the next thing you know they're being used for political purposes. But he also, trying to get the book out, he came across the same thing as Orwell did. 
he says, he says, um, he, he was shot. He was shot. He says, uh, um, when he looked at the publishing houses in the mainstream literature in Britain, to all the familiar brand names like Penguin, Granada, etc., had all been bought out. There's also Virgin Publishing. He contacted them once, or, or, or a couple of times, but none of them would take him up on his book. So he went ahead anyway in 2005 and banged the thing out in one go, and still nobody would take it. And then he could go on the route of small independent publishers and got it on shelves, but they've got little distribution, you see. And you only end up with a couple of pennies and a dollar for your book. And then Amazon's left, right? Amazon takes 60% of the end price. So you work and you get your book out and all the rest of it. You put all that time into it. You sweat over the photoshops, etc. for the cover. You argue with the printers. It costs two pounds a book. And you have to pay to ship it to Amazon's warehouse. So in a 15-pound book, they take nine pounds. And you're lucky to see a return of a pound or two on each one. See, that's how it's really set up. When you see masses, when you see masses of books put out across the planet on major bookshelves by people who are unknown to begin with, especially pushing the whole new age stuff, there's a bigger power behind it. This guy had a lot to say, and he had to put the book out himself. There's a reason, and I'll, I'll mention what the reason is, that, that they won't let it out there after this break. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. Just discussing uh, how the culture industry is a, a vital arm, along with the media, of controlling the minds of millions and billions even of people. And how Vince White had a, an awful job getting out. Something that was contrary to, to what the big boys wanted people to remember of a particular band like many bands were out there supposedly protesting and yelling about all the things that were wrong in the world. And that's what they were doing. They were yelling, you see, because they were trying to drum up a social movement amongst the youth. And the youth would never really know where they were being led. They'd never know where they are being led. Never. All they hear is what they want to hear. And that's yell, yell, yell. This is wrong. That's wrong. Things they can all see and agree upon. And things are very black and white. There's no gray areas when you're young. And you get very emotional and up, up, uptight about things. So they use that energy, and they use it for a social movement. This is what he says on page four of that book. He says, he says um, uh, I imagine when I was leaping around near the stage as a teenager was that the clash were humanitarians who believed in equality and justice and freedom and rights, the voices of people like me, people who got pissed off with the world, individuals angry and indignant, tired of being pushed around and told what to do and think by the state. What I found when I actually joined the band was a smug, joyless, and oppressive totalitarian dictatorship that would have shocked Stalin. He's talking about the boys that control it all. It's interesting, too, at the bottom of this one, it's a lesson they all learn, all the guys that are used, believe you me. I know even the basic rollers have still got lawsuits and trying to get money back. They've got nothing. He says, but don't worry in this story. I don't complain about my useless employment. I could jack it in forever any night. I shut my mouth, pretend to enjoy it, thinking of all the money I never got. They're all ripped off, silly. By the sharks, you see, who control the entire industry. 
and use them, as I say, for social movements that they're not even aware of. They don't even know where it's going or, it's, or even that it's being directed towards a particular area. We're all in it together, they say, right? We're all on board together. And you get all the youth on board together for what? For change. Change is good. They've been saying this in academies for years before we heard the term put out by the slogan makers. Because we're all on board to this greening, sustainable planet where they depopulate, bring down the population, and eventually get to love your servitude and come forward as volunteers for voluntary sterilization so they won't have to do it the insidious way through inoculations as they have in the past. And buy sphenol A in your food or in baby food, or in your bottled water, or in anything else. No, the stealth way, you see. But as I say, it's worth a read. Look into www.vinswhite.com, and you can order the book direct and bypass all these big shots that wouldn't let them put it out there. They want, see, once you've got a name out there, a big name, they can refill positions with different people and they live on the name as a social reformist band, you see. That's more important. And they don't want the public knowing the truth of what goes on inside. But at least he went ahead. He started that fire that, that we all have when we're yelling and screaming about all the injustices and it hasn't left them and that's good. So he's got it out there for people to read for themselves. Great for the young ones too. We're thinking of even getting into this mess they call the music industry, this complete illusion of tinsel and flashing lights. From Hamish myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.